from PRX. You. Stu. D. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Now don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you are. No, no. You've I'm... got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show... Innocent and a little naughty. Uh, don't let some hell-bent heart leave you bitter. No! Put the brakes on! When you come close <laughs> to selling out... Reconsider. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. If you have a radio, and I'm pretty certain you do, and if you ever switch away from your public station, you may recognize this voice. You're listening to Delilah. Like a lot of super famous people in show business, Delilah Renee Luke goes by just the one name. She has hosted a national call-in radio show for 30 years talking to listeners about their various relationship problems. So you've been good friends for three years. How old are you? I'm 19. And he has all the qualities that you would want in a forever partner. Yeah. And he's crazy about you. Yeah. And the problem is what? I don't, I don't want to lose him as a friend. If I were you and I had somebody absolutely crazy in love with me that I liked and that was my friend and was attractive, I would take the chance. And for each one, she prescribes a song, a particular kind of song. In this case, Not a Bad Thing by Justin Timberlake. Said all I want from you is to see you tomorrow. Eight million listeners tune in every night. Delilah has also published several books, each one of them about love, which, yes, I know all sounds kind of cheesy, but she knows that and calls herself the queen of sappy love songs. So as Valentine's Day approaches, I wanted to talk to this particular phenom. Delilah, I am happy to meet you. Hi, Kurt. Thank you. I mentioned earlier that on your show for each and almost every caller, you play a particular custom-chosen love song, and as you say, sappy ones. What do you love about those? I think one of the reasons that I went, chose this path for my career is because I have always loved music. My father was a musician. He had a country-western band. I was raised around people that danced. You know, my parents would go out to uh, the Eagles or the Elks almost every weekend so they could dance, uh -huh. and they knew how to dance, like jitterbug and waltz and four-step and two-step. And so music has always been a part of my life, and my father was a wonderful lyricist. So from the time I was small, I loved music, uh, particularly lyrics. And... um I probably would be a musician except for one small fact, Kurt. Which is what? I can't sing. Well, then this is your vicarious way to be in the music business, I guess. Exactly. But I love music and I have like this 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 uh, storehouse of lyrics in my brain. So if you call me and you tell me a situation, I can find a song that hopefully lyrically speaks to your situation. Do you not have people feeding you, oh, give them this, give her this, give her this, or this is all in your head? Well, I have a person feeding me this. Uh, her name is Jane. She's been my producer for 25 years. 
And so she has a little different taste in music and a different storehouse of lyrics in her head. And so we will argue back and forth where I'll say, you know, play um, Elton John, uh, you got to love somebody. And she'll like, oh, that's so yesterday. Let's play Pink instead. And and so we'll go back and forth. And then I remind her, Jane, I'm the one that writes your check. So we'll go with what I chose. And she'll remind me, D, I'm the one that controls your microphone. So shut the heck up. And probably 90% of the time I defer to Jane because... You know, she's smarter than me. Well, that's always a good thing to do with one's producers. But now you say, again, self-deprecatingly, I am the queen of uh, sappy love songs. Are there songs that are just too sappy even for, for Delilah? Yeah, there are songs that are so sappy. They uh, It's like eating a spoonful of sugar. It just puts my spirit on edge, you know. But unfortunately, they're really, really still requested and I've heard that one song that goes over your line is uh, Bette Midler's version of The Wind Beneath My Wings. Did you ever know that you're my hero? And everything I would like to be. Yeah, well, see, I like the version by Lee Greenwood the best. Yeah, yeah, the country yeah. Version. yeah, yeah. That that I can I can listen to maybe twice before I want to put a pen through my eyeball. But Bet gets requested. It's like how many years ago? Thirty years ago, the movie came out. Beaches. Beaches. Right. I still get requests for that song every night. Do you ever relent and play it? Sometimes. If it's a really, really, really good story and no other song, I can't talk them into any other song. <laughs> Are, have there been callers that, that stick in your memory? That Wow, that was an amazing conversation I had. Oh, yeah. Probably my favorite, favorite, favorite story uh, was years ago when we weren't on as many stations as we are on now. Now... Uh, it's hard for somebody to get through two or three nights in a row. Used to be, you know, I'd get the same, you know, 50 people that called every night. Anyway, a gentleman called, wanted to dedicate a song. He was reminiscing. He was feeling melancholy, wanted a song for his girlfriend he had dated in high school. Uh I aired his call and I took his information down. After I aired the call, a woman calls and says, oh, my God, I know that couple. I know him. I know her. We were friends in high school. We all went to prom together. I'm going to try to get in touch with her and let her know that Mike was thinking about her. Okay, great. A few nights later, the girl calls me and says, I can't believe my old boyfriend got in touch with you. Can I get in touch with him? And I said, no, I can't give you that information if anything happened and you got hurt. I would feel responsible, but give me your information and I'll see what I can do here. So now I have both their contact information. I talked to Janie uh, and we agreed to do a three-way call with them and put them in touch. Okay. Off the air. Two or three weeks later, Mike calls me back. Can't even talk. He's so emotional. I'm like, are you okay? He says, yeah. He said, after we talked with you, we agreed to meet Uh and we set up a time to meet in a restaurant. And he says, I walked in and she was as beautiful as she was the day I left and joined the military. He said, we sat, we talked for probably 10 or 15 minutes. She said, I have a little surprise for you. And in walked my 21-year-old daughter. 
Well, that's sort of the ultimate uh, sappy but true Delilah story then. It gets better. Six months later on the air, I get a call from the daughter who says, how would you like to come to a wedding? Of course. Her folks got married after being apart 22 years. Wow. Well, your work is done. I was like, does anything get better than this? Do you remember uh, the first time either of them called what song you played? I'm sure it was Wind Beneath My Wings. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember. (laughs) Um, You have a lot of children, 13 children, which uh, seems to me it would suit you to (laughs) give advice to people about love. Um, You've also been married four times. How have those two large facts shaped how you do your job? Well, with each one of the children that God either gave me through birth or adoption, there have been challenges. In my first son, I was married to his father. He left when my baby was 10 months old, and I was a single parent. And uh, my son is mixed. His father was black, so my family had disowned me. Mm-hmm. I had no family to lean on. He was long gone, and here I am, 24 years old, with a mixed baby in a world that at the time that wasn't really acceptable. So having Sonny, and I was a single parent for 10 years, uh, raising him alone gave me so much to draw on, like so many experiences we went through. I mean, there was a time we were homeless. There was just so much stuff that we went through that when a young mama calls me and says, you know, I'm a single mom, I got three kids, I know what she's going right, through. Right. I know what it's like to choose between am I going to pay my rent or am I going to buy food for my kid? You know, those I know those choices. And and you know you know what happens when yeah, when relationships don't work out that you were counting on being forever. Forever and always, as our song said. Yeah. Um, and then I had a marriage that only lasted six weeks and was annulled. I uh, married on the rebound huh. and certainly discovered that you should not do that. And <laughs> yeah. so when somebody calls me and says, you know, my husband left me last year and I just met this wonderful man. Our divorce has been final two weeks and I'm ready to get married again. I'm like, no, no, don't do that. <laughs> Put the brakes on. Yeah. So you have you have lived it as well as talked it. Yeah. There's really not much you can you can call me and tell me that I don't have some basis for understanding. Well, in that case, uh, you have uh, some big fans on the Studio 360 staff, and some of them recorded uh, a few stories about current love issues to share with you if you're game to listen. Sure. Hey, Delilah, my name is Zakia. I'd like to request a song from my friend. She interned here in New York last summer, and during that time she met a guy, and she fell in love, but then she had to move back to Miami, and she just found out that she got a job in New York, so she's going to be moving back in the summer, and she doesn't know she should rekindle that romance or just leave the past in the past. Wow. Well, uh, there's a lot, there's a big piece of that story that's missing that I would have to find out. But if they still love each other and they were still best friends and now she's coming back, heck yes! There you go. Yeah! You need, uh, after all, Peter Cetera and Cher. After all the stars and stars, we keep coming back to these two hearts, two angels who've been rescued from the Is meant to be you and me after all. 
Hi, Delilah. This is Andy. I would like to dedicate a song to my friend Brooke. She fell in love with this guy, Josh, like eight months ago. And like almost as soon as she fell in love with him, he started dying and he died. And it was incredibly sad. And she's been incredibly resilient and and um, really appreciative of him, but is kind of having a hard time now. So I'd like you to play something for Brooke. Wow. That's very sad. Um, Celine Dion wrote a song uh, years ago that isn't played very often, but in situations like this, I would play it, and it's called Fly. And it's about uh, the loved one, the person that you'd lost, their spirit flying. Um, it's just very beautiful. So that's what I would play. Fly, fly, do not fear. Don't waste a breath, don't shed a tear. Your heart is beyond. On your way, don't wait for me. About the universe, you'll climb on beyond the hands of time. The moon will rise, the sun will set, but I won't forget. Uh, Delilah, this has been a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for spending especially this much time with me when you've got to spend the next five hours on the air. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kurt. You can hear Delilah on the radio seven nights a week. I've always wanted to say check your local listings and 24 hours a day online. Hi, this is Delilah. You're listening to Studio 360. Our next story comes from a listener who maybe should have called in to Delilah, but wrote to us instead. My name is Mary Miller. I'm from St. Pete, Florida. Mary Miller listens to this show on WUSF in Tampa. A few years ago, she found herself smitten. When I met this gentleman, he represented all romance. He had uh, traveled down here on the intercoastal waterway on a boat, and he was going to travel the world. And he made his money in order to do this by taking houses and turning them around and selling them for five times what he paid for. And uh, I fell in love with the romance. I fell in love with the idea that I could live my dreams of, of traveling the world, live on a boat. And, um, and then we broke up. I gave my heart to this guy. He trampled it. And I was going to teach him a lesson that I could uh, go out there in his world and make the kind of money he'd made and make a name for myself. And uh, I didn't even own a drill to, to flip a house. I had something to prove, though. I had something to prove. I was in my car on the way to the bank to sign a loan for $400,000, and this song came on the radio. And uh, I heard Leanne Womack sing. And when you get the choice to sit it out or dance, I hope you dance. I hope you dance. I hope you never... And uh, I was sitting in the comfy bank chair... I had the pen in my hand, and I'm ready to sign the dotted line 
for $400,000 in home equity line of credit, <laughs> which seems ridiculous because at the time my income was uh, less than $20,000. And I heard the lyrics in my head. Don't let some hell-bent heart leave you bitter. When you come close to selling out, reconsider. And I just sat there with the pen in my hand. I, I just finally put it down and said, I can't do this. As it happened, within a year, the whole housing market totally crashed. And uh, I would have lost everything. I would have lost every dime had I signed that dotted line. It was over. Um, it had been over between me and this fellow, and I had to let it go. And uh, it was the best thing I ever did. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I put my money into music equipment, and my singing had just taken off. Welcome, everyone, to our show. I'm so happy to be here tonight. Ooh, Dean. Oh, Dean just puts me in the mood. Now I get to sing in retirement communities, and I have so much fun. I love it. Oh, it's just going to be so much fun tonight because... These are the best of the business. We'll be singing together Harry Belafonte, Matilda, and <laughs> the Banana Boat song. Uh, goofy stuff. That's Amore. Their faces light up. All the cares drop away from them. And that takes them out of the pain and suffering, uh, the loneliness that can come to all of us. That's what music does. And for me to be able to enjoy that with them, it's the greatest gift. What I learn from these folks who have lived into their 80s and 90s is pretty similar to what Leanne Womack sings about in her song, I Hope You Dance. Living might mean taking chances, but they're worth taking. And loving might be a mistake, but it's worth making. They teach me how to live, how to take risks, how to be true to myself, because life is short. One day you'll find that the time has passed, and when you get the choice to sit it out or dance, <laughs> that's it. That's Mary Miller who listens to the show on WUSF in Tampa, Florida. Jenny Lawton produced our story with help from Eve Asher. So has some piece of music or book or movie or building or any other cultural thing ever changed your life? If so, tell us about it, and we might put your story on the air. Go to studio360.org and leave us a comment. Coming up... Edible underwear was a breakthrough in the joke gift world, but it wasn't to everybody's taste. We had banana split, cherry, and chocolate. The doomed one. Not a good idea. The twists and turns of candy pants. 
That's ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Studio 360. Robert and Clara Schumann were classical music's original power couple. He was one of the leading composers of the 19th century. She was a piano superstar who toured all over Europe playing, among other things, her husband's music. Clara was also a composer herself, but not so well known for that part of her life. She was only in her 30s when Robert Schumann died, and after that, she pretty much stopped writing music. Fast forward to 1972, when one of the most celebrated chamber music groups in America, the Beaux-Arts Trio, recorded Clara Schumann's only piano trio, along with three piano trios by her husband. Now that recording has been inducted into the National Recording Registry at the Library of Congress. And to tell the story of that album and the Schumann's relationship, we've got a scholar. My name is John Tibbetts. I'm an associate professor of film and media studies at the University of Kansas. A biographer. I'm Anna Beer, and I'm the author of Sounds and Sweet Airs, The Forgotten Women of Classical Music. And a founding member of the Beaux-Arts Trio. My name is Menachem Pressler. My occupation is pianist and teacher. My trio recorded the piano trios of Robert Schumann twice. And in the first edition, we also recorded Clara Schumann's trio. This is the Beaux-Arts trio at its peak. All three of the performers, Menachem Pressler, Bernard Greenhouse, and Isidore Cohen, are accomplished musicians in their own right. And these 1972 recordings, I think, are unparalleled in their success in performance. The three of us loved that music intensely, and we played it with great, great, great passion. Robert Schumann, at the time of his death, was already regarded as a musical revolutionary. Clara Schumann, at that point, had become his chief interpreter, as well as a formidable virtuoso pianist. What Clara had was a hugely ambitious piano teacher father who created this prodigy, and as part of that, she would be expected to perform her own music. In fact, it all helped to fuel her superstar status. And her work with Robert, both as an interpreter and as an inspirer of his music, carried forward an awful lot of piano music by her husband and by many others of the day. She helped establish the German tradition of Bach and Beethoven, and she wanted to make sure her husband, Robert Schumann, was part of that tradition. So one of the great ironies of Clara Schumann's life is that she helped create a tradition that would exclude her. The Schumann Piano Trios that we're talking about today were born out of house music performances, small, intimate groupings, and I think to an extent the music shows that kind of intimacy. Clara Schumann wrote her piano trio in the summer of 1846. She'd just done a house move, 
from Leipzig to Dresden, partly because Robert Schumann had had the first serious mental breakdown that he'd had during their married life. She had three young children and was pregnant with her fourth child, who would be born only 11 months after the uh, last baby's birth. The poor thing suffers a miscarriage then, and she writes this piano trio <laughs> in the midst of all that. Sarah's trio is very beautiful, and her piano part is exciting, it's difficult. Well, of course, both Clara and Robert Schumann were great friends with Felix Mendelssohn, one of the leading figures of the day in Leipzig. Therefore, Clara's piano trio displays more of a Mendelssohnian lightness than I think can be said generally of the piano trios of her husband, Robert. So we listen to Clara's music as being, shall I say it, a bit more modest and very gentle. I found it very hard to write about Clara and Robert as a, as a creative couple because looking at the letters and the diaries and the archives, you simply see it as attritional. You see every single week the diminishing of Clara Schumann as a creative person and a sort of subtle kind of oppression going on domestically and beyond the home. The marriage began with great ideals on, on both sides, certainly on Robert's side, that they would both be composers together. But you try having two pianos in the same house, you try having a child every year and still keeping two careers going. We're still not doing it very well in the 21st century. It's not surprising that it didn't work in Leipzig in the early 19th century. She was a great pianist, but the genius of Robert is the composer was not Clara's. Clara Schumann, I think, believed the stories we tell ourselves about the capabilities of men and women. She said women are born to be interpreters, not creators. And yet, in other areas of life, Clara Schumann was very happy to break all the taboos of her, her society. Uh, she, she certainly left her kids at home. She certainly didn't look after them. She went on gruelling tours uh, all over Europe, including during the entire time her husband Robert was in the mental asylum, but also in the months immediately after his death. It was as if she was utterly committed to that. And so we have a young woman's music, we have a performer's music. It is glorious, but one does wonder what she might have moved on to if circumstances had been different. Thanks to Devin Strolovich from BMP Audio for producing that story. We've got lots more stories about great records that have been entered into the National Recording Registry at the Library of Congress, and you can listen to them all at studio360.org. Here is a Valentine's present that may make your recipient uncomfortable in both senses. Edible underwear. It is still a big gag gift four decades after it was invented. Invented, of course, in the 1970s. It also made its inventors rich. Gideon Brower tells us that story. Yeah. 
One thing to know about edible underwear, those candy briefs you might buy as a gag gift that you can wear and also eat, they were never originally meant to be eaten, and they were never originally meant to be worn. We approached it as conceptual art and as a sexual parody. It ended up being just this gargantuan behemoth. It kind of got out of control. Lee Brady and David Sanderson are the guys who invented edible underwear. They're also a couple. They've been together since 1967. This all starts in the early 70s. David and Lee and some friends were sitting around a big, run-down Victorian house they were renting in Chicago's Old Town neighborhood. And this will not shock you, they were a little high. We, we were sitting around smoking. Drinking any green spring wine, apple flavor. We were talking about colloquialisms, you know, like, go bananas. Puff the magic dragon, just kind of put it in our minds. And I remembered that my older brother used to say to me, eat my shorts. Eat my shorts. Like, buzz off. We are just howling at that. And then David thought, well, why can't you make them? Why isn't there such a thing? Now... I kind of doubt David's older brother was the first person ever to say, eat my shorts. And David and Lee probably weren't the first people to think maybe you could actually do that. But where other people might just laugh about it and then forget it, they didn't. And when they said they were making edible underwear, they weren't kidding around. Everybody thought we were totally bonkers. We bought trash bags. We had a friend, Christina. We would pin them on her and get a design that we would cut out. And uh, then we would string it with licorice. The early ones were designed exactly like underwear. Tidy whities The licorice was the strings. You'd tie it on each side of your hip in a bow. The men's, we actually put a pouch in it. The design wasn't the only challenge. At the time, there was no product that you could cut like fabric, package, color, flavor, and eat. So they had to develop it themselves. We were experimenting in the spare bedroom with a potato starch and hydroxypropyl methylcellulose, which is an edible plastic. It took a while, but they did eventually come up with a product that was both edible and wearable, and they gave it a name. Candy, candy pants. pants. In 1975, when they'd made about a dozen pairs... We had a friend who had a bath shop. He said, you can put them in the front window if you want. Lee and David say, even though they'd gone to all that trouble... They still didn't expect much. But here's where a miracle happened. A marketing miracle, which may be a minor miracle in the scheme of miracles, but still, people spend years desperately trying to get publicity and attention for things they invent. And the way David and Lee tell it, the very first person who bought a pair of candy pants... A girl from the University of Indiana bought the first pair. Her school newspaper wrote about it, and the wire services picked up the story. It went around the world in 24 hours. And then all hell broke loose. I got calls all night long from England, Australia, Canada, Germany. And then NBC called and said, can you be on the 6 o'clock news tomorrow? Who knows why edible underwear struck such a chord? The mid-70s, post-Watergate, post-Vietnam, in the depths of an economic recession, were kind of a grim period. And candy pants were just something silly and fun. Whatever the reason, orders started coming in by the thousands for a product that didn't really exist yet outside of Lee and David's spare bedroom. If you would, please, send us 12 dozen candy pants. And did I mention there were a few quality control problems? It had to have the right humidity and temperature, or it would just dissolve or get brittle and break. 
but they were can-do guys. So they got a factory. The Willy Wonka factory. Willy Wonka factory. We had giant decals of Mickey Mouse, Minnie Mouse, Pluto, Goofy, plastered all over this gigantic wall. We started hiring people. Everybody wanted to work for us. We were fun. We had parties every Friday night. Lee and David were in the papers. They were on television. Floyd Kramer and Chet Atkins were watching Johnny Carson, and they saw him talk about edible underwear. And they'd written a little ditty, and they thought, that's it. Let's call it Candy Pants. It was a wonder product. It appealed to everyone. Young and old, gay and straight, prude and libertine, Everybody loved candy pants. I'd like to order 36 dozen candy pants, 24 dozen women's, 12 dozen men's. Could you call us back on this and confirm whether you did receive We had banana split, cherry, and chocolate. The doomed one. Not a good idea. Uh, <laughs> We came up with passion fruit. We did a mint one, which was green. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Division would not give us a trademark at first because they said the words candy and pants were mutually exclusive. But eventually we did get that. We had a guy come and he he placed an order for a quarter of a million of them. We were like, what? We had a convent that uh, actually awarded them at bingo games. Motorcycle shops carried them. Nursing homes. Bloomingdale's lingerie shops. An anniversary gift, a birthday gift. Really big for bridal showers. Really big. We were selling about $150,000 a month in 1976. We were making a lot of money. We would spend it as fast as we would make it. You know, you're young. You're going to live forever. Lee and David bought a 7,000-square-foot mansion. They had parties. Lots of parties. One thing to remember, if you're trying to picture what their lives were like at that time, this was happening. Disco started to get popular. Donna Summer, and <laughs> we partied a lot. We were generous, uh, I guess you could say. David and Lee did still have a business to run. And the way they tell it, they were starting to encounter some problems. We would order like 9,000 pounds of flavoring, and all of a sudden we'd get nine pounds. The couple says they were getting squeezed by people who wanted to take over their business and sell candy pants to a different kind of clientele. These men would come in and buy a dozen pair and sell them in their bookstores that sold magazines like jugs. David and Lee had deliberately kept their product out of stores like that. It just wasn't how they saw candy pants. We always thought of it as being innocent and a little naughty. But knockoffs of their product were already turning up in porno stores. Lee and David say the stress of maintaining their supply chain was getting to them. They had to make a tough decision. It was nine years that we were, we were running it. They chose to sell the rights to their product to a group they'd rather not talk about much. And um, that was the end of the deal. It was done. It was just done. The bad news? 
Lee and David were out of the edible underwear business. The good news, they were rich. We drove around Florida for six months and lived kind of a rock starry kind of life. And then they did what they'd always done. Everything. We started up a product called Diamond Jacks. That's a cross between Cracker Jacks and playing the lottery. We had a, a gem in every box. So far, 28,000 boxes of Diamond Jacks have been shipped. Nine diamonds have been found and five are still out there somewhere. We came up with a breath freshener called Mighty Mouth. Edible paper with caramel pens for kids. I dabbled in doing figurative art for a while. Lee Brady and David Sanderson have been together almost 50 years now. It seems like they've done everything and been everywhere. But they know if they're remembered for one thing, it'll be candy pants. I do feel like it's like our, our signature contribution to I don't know what. It's taken on a life of its own. It just goes on and on and on. We outlived the pet rock. A version of that story by Gideon Brower originally appeared on the KCRW show Good Food. Still ahead this hour, parents can be terrible nags. But when it's radio DJs they're nagging, that is excellent. She would just call every, you know, radio station. Um, to try to be the 194th caller and win, exactly. the, win the tickets? Yeah, yeah. They knew her by name. They saw her on the caller ID and they said, oh, she just keeps calling. Just let them have the tickets. How her mom's persistence shaped the musical education of Basha Bulat. That's next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Breakups pretty much always suck, uh, but at least when you're a writer, you can get some material out of it. The heart of my own, down low. The light in your verse and the shadow between the way that I was when I used to know. Not so long ago, the Canadian songwriter and singer Basha Bulat had a difficult split, but she pulled herself together to write 10 breakup songs. Then drove due south from Toronto, where she lives, to Louisville, Kentucky, to record them for her new album. And the resulting music sounded totally different. You're not ready for the life to No, you don't let me never gonna let me in. Are you ever gonna let me in? No, you can't let me never gonna let me in. Are you ever gonna let me in? It is a bona fide pop record. It's called Good Advice. I love it very much. And Basha Bulat is here to play and to talk. Hello and welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So do you consider this a pop record? I do. <laughs> Some people think of that word in a, as a negative yeah. term, but I don't really see it that way. I, yeah, I love all kinds of different kinds of pop music. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's not like made by Swedish automatons. It's a, it's a particular kind of of good pop. Yeah. I think sometimes when you're, I mean, as you said, it's it's a record that I wrote when I was going through a, a tough time. And sometimes you just want to get down to basics uh, to get through those times. And so you, you had these songs. Did the material 
as you wrote the songs, want to be to be popular, or did you just decide, ah, I've done these three other things, I'm going to switch it up? I think in a greater scheme of things, I wanted to try to reflect the full spectrum of emotion because for all the sadness or fear that you have in those big changes, you also have happy memories and yeah. joy and love. So I wanted, I knew I wanted that, but I didn't want to stay tied necessarily. I wanted to make something that felt new. And you had um, Jim James from the band My Morning Jacket produce the record. How did that collaboration come to be? I'd known Jim for a few years, and something we had talked about over that time was how much it's important to keep doing something different and not repeat yourself. Uh And so I knew that he would be a good person to help me and encourage me in that way. And kind of one of the great things about Jim as a producer is that he is able to steer the spaceship, but you decide the planet that you're going to go to. (laughs) Nicely put. Uh, will Will you play a song? Yeah. And who are you playing with? I am playing with Miss Lacey Guthrie, singing vocals on this song, Mr. Ben Whiteley on the bass and vocals, and Mr. Dave Given on drums. And this is going to be? This next song is called Fool. Great.
That was Basha Bulat and her band playing Fool off the album Good Advice. I can see that being a, a gigantic hit song. Oh, thank you. Hopefully, <laughs> it might be. Hopefully. No, um, no. <laughs> the songs on your last album, Tall, Tall Shadow, were about awful things, the death of somebody close to you. And the music sounded darkish, unlike what we just heard. But but the lyrics were all pretty hopeful. On this album, uh, the music is brisk and upbeat and driving and poppy. But the lyrics are not so much. Is, is that tension between lyric and music, uh, you know, NMO for you? Yeah. Um, there, there's a quote that I love all the time. I, I bring it up all the time. Um, your joy is your sorrow unmasked. Yeah. I, I just love that phrase so much because it's it's always there. Both are always there. Yeah. Um, your parents emigrated uh, to North America from Poland. And it sounds like your mother was almost raising you to be who you became. <laughs> by, she's a piano teacher, right? Yeah, she was. So she's a piano teacher, introduced you to classical music, played music all the time. And then what's this story about like in order to get free tickets for you and your brother to go to a rock <laughs> concert, she would just like – uh, be a stalker of, of, of pop music contests? Well, yeah. My mom was uh, kind of taking care of my brother and I on her own. And so she was working working a lot to make that happen. And she would just call every you know radio station. Um, to just, try to be the 194th caller and win, exactly. the, win the tickets? Yeah, yeah. They knew her by name. They saw her on the caller ID and they said, oh, we'll just... She just keeps calling. Just let them have the tickets. Really? So, so it worked. Yeah, I mean, it was such an amazing... I mean, that's why she came to Canada was because she wanted us to be able to do all the things that she wouldn't have been able to do at the time in communist Poland when she yeah, was yeah. our age, you know. Uh, and what are some of the <laughs> acts you saw? This may surprise you, the, the bands that I was really into. <laughs> I relish surprise. Um, Radiohead was one of the big ones. Um, Foo Fighters, a band called Air from France huh. that I loved um, Beck. I saw Beck a few times. None, um, none of those surprised me, actually. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's good. I don't know Air, but otherwise they don't surprise me. <laughs> I think I, we even saw Blink-182 with uh, Bad Religion or something. Okay, yeah. there you, n- now we're getting into the neighborhood of surprise. <laughs> that's more my brother's <laughs> realm. <laughs> yeah. Um, great scene in the uh, Bashi Bulat uh, biopic where your mother is getting these three tickets. <laughs> yeah. Just a few hours of speed dial. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I also have read that you are working on a record in Polish. I am. I've got a few projects on the go. That one has been going on forever. But What's the idea? Know, Just write songs and then translate them into Polish or like play your versions of old-fashioned Polish folk songs um, or what? It was more writing in Polish and, and really kind of as the first-generation Canadian, you're from one place but also right. you have such deep roots in another place and when you go back to that place, you don't necessarily belong in that place right, either. Of so it's an interesting – you're kind of a hyphen. Do you, do you speak <laughs> Polish? Very poorly. <laughs> but good enough to write some songs? Yeah, that's the beauty of uh, the recording studio. You can do as many takes as you want. Until right. It's right. Well, good. Uh, Basha Bulat, it has been a complete pleasure to listen to this album, to talk to you. Thanks. And will you play us out with another song? Yeah. Thank you for having me. Um, this song's called Infamous. Great.
That's it for this hour of Studio 360. Thanks very much for listening. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our team here includes Kari Pitkin, Andrew Adam Newman, Louis Mitchell, Daniel Guimet, Sam Kim, Skylar Swenson, Tommy Bazzari, Zoe Saunders, Matt Fiddler, Max Gibson, Sophie Caddo. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360. I'm in heaven. La La Land director Damien Chazelle tells us about his Hollywood heroes. I mean, this number, I think it's one of the greatest pieces of filmmaking in general of all time. It's our Oscar preview next week in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Together, dancing cheek to cheek.